Yeah, as a reminder uh, about the loss the molders have sustained, that the Lord takes away, but he also gives. And today we've got Joshua and Caleb with us back there with the patent. So. <laughs> there they are. Okay. What a blessing. Uh, this was also kind of a momentous week for the Vincents. Uh, David turned 21 today. Uh, he's off on vacation, coming back. And uh, for the first time in about 38 years of raising children, we now do not have uh, any non-teenagers, if I've said that right, in our home. Ben turned 13. This is a big deal. Uh, and I just seem to kind of fade away, you know. One thing, however, that does not fade away is the controversy and different feelings about our text today. Uh, if you mention God's law, you'll usually hear the response today of, well, we're not under the law, we're under grace. And when you agree and say, yeah, but what does that mean? Well, you'll, you may hear somebody say, well, you know, the law's been thrown out. Christ did away with it. Who wants to follow rules anyway? Well, perhaps you've been through one of those read-through-the-Bible-in-a-year programs, and about this time of year you might get to the Sermon on the Mount. And you go through the Beatitudes, and you hear all these wonderful things about these qualities. You know the part about persecution is a little unsettling, but then you read about salt and light, and it's, it just fits. You know, it's so much of being a Christian, then you run into this. Do not think that I came to abolish the law or the prophets. I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or stroke shall pass from the law until all is accomplished. Whoever then annuls one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same, shall be called the least in the kingdom of heaven. But, who, but for whoever keeps and teaches them, he shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I say to you that unless your righteousness surpasses the, that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will not enter into the kingdom of heaven. Now, some of you, like I in some passages, you may just keep kind of reading on and with no real thought about the apparent conflict between that passage and what we all think about, especially in light of what Paul says. Uh, if you do engage your brain housing group, however, maybe you've taken solace in the interpretation that says the Sermon on the Mount really doesn't apply to us today. It's just nice reading. But if you're like me and like we've taught before, uh, you know, that really doesn't square with my personal feeling like there's some really good stuff in the Sermon on the Mount and the fact that it's in the Gospels and that it, it, it is entirely composed of the words of Jesus. And so we talked several weeks and months ago about how, yeah, I really view the Sermon on the Mount as being applicable. It's part of all Scripture. Uh, and, uh, and so we don't really know what to do with this. Jesus himself seems to have a pretty healthy respect for the law. But then again, what do you do when Paul says what he says about law and grace? That Jesus is the end of the law, as it says in Romans 10.4. 
Well, aside from the question about whether the Sermon on the Mount applies to us today, this is really the first major controversial issue we've run into in this, in this series on the sermon. And so today, we're going to wrestle with one of the most difficult passages, certainly in the New Testament, if not in the whole Bible. And so that might provide some help with the pop quiz on your study sheet. In explaining this passage in Matthew 5, all the scholars and commentators have all kinds of explanations. Sometimes I feel like I'm reading about the seven blind men who were feeling and describing the elephant. Uh, Now, some may be offended by that analogy, but I know that I am not omniscient, and I suspect the same of others. Truth is, many of these commentators are good and godly believers who are genuinely trying to help us understand a difficult passage, but who genuinely disagree, at least as to rationale. The problem is, for you today, is that I am neither as intelligent nor as insightful as any of these blind feelers. To be honest, in reading several of the theologians, a group to which I do not belong, I'm reminded about, of a group to which I do belong, lawyers. You see, when lawyers are advocates, and they must argue their positions, and when there's a disputed or a difficult question, they research, they use logic and, they, and precedent to support their, their arguments. And when that does not suffice, they look for original intent of the law, or at least evidences of intent, or maybe even just inferences of of intent, of whether it's the framers of the Constitution or the legislators who pass the laws. And in that process, they can end up drawing some pretty fine lines of distinction to the parties, their clients. Of course, their lawyers, respectively, are absolutely correct. But to the non-lawyer jurors who are listening to the arguments, they might be persuaded by one side, and then the other side comes up, and they can fall over to that side just because they make good arguments. This ambivalence is even shared by judges, believe it or not. Recently, the United States Supreme Court made several unanimous decisions, and the fact that they were unanimous was the news, at least a major part of it, because... It is rather rare for some of the most, what we consider the most learned legal minds in the country, the greatest country, sitting on the highest court to agree on anything, at least in matters of importance. Now, let me be clear here. It's not wrong to dig in and exegete the scriptures in order to come to the best conclusions. However, for me to attempt to teach you from one of these huge, dusty treaties on God's law in the New Testament would be somewhat akin to me reading you a detailed legal brief. Sure cure for, in, for all the insomniacs here, but not terribly helpful. Uh, the point I'm trying to make is this, that just as we don't always know how things are co- going to come out in a courtroom, even when we feel strongly about it, Christians should not be too dogmatic in spiritual interpretations about which genuine believers, including the experts in good faith, disagree. For me, what I try to do is simply look at the word itself, consider the various arguments, and hopefully being led by the Spirit in my own understanding. 
and I encourage you to do the same. If you have been taught or you've thought about this issue at, at all in the past, you're probably going to find something today with which to disagree. Uh, I simply ask that you hear me out and pray and come to your own conclusions. And in fact, in the end, I'm not so sure that we're going to be very far apart. One of the guiding principles that I try to apply to interpretation is to look at Scripture as a whole, a con as consistent throughout, as making sense. I call it coherency. I try to understand the word in a literal sense. Uh, it means what it says, with the understanding that Jesus often teaches in parables, uh, in, uh, in simile and metaphor. Uh, and so, therefore, making wooden literal interpretation of all Scripture is sometimes inappropriate. He wants us to think about what he said, and hopefully that's what we'll do. Now, while it helps, thinking does not always guarantee that we'll arrive at the truth. In truth, I will reach some conclusions today myself about which I, frankly, may be wrong. Other lion and lamb teachers may have a different take on this and are hereby invited to weigh in. As Mike mentioned a couple of weeks ago, you are encouraged to talk to us if you disagree and hold us accountable. Iron sharpens iron, and that's the kind of open and honest relationship we want at Lion and Lamb. So, with those ground rules, let's go to the text. Up to this point in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus taught about the character of the believer and the influence or good fruit he will bear if that character is visible to the world. But in 17 through 20, Jesus defines that character and good works in terms of righteousness. To hammer out the point with authority for the first time in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus uses the first person, I say to you, not once, but twice. And he makes two rather startling and significant statements about this righteousness for which we are to hunger and thirst and for which we are going to be persecuted. First is that it conforms to God's moral law. And secondly, that it exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees. Uh, put another way, in verses 17 and 18, Jesus deals with first Christ and the law. And what he's saying is that his teachings are in complete harmony with the entire Old Testament. And in verses 19 and 20, he addresses the Christian and the law. And Jesus says here that all that he teaches is in complete disharmony with the teaching of the scribes and the Pharisees. Jesus makes clear that the law of God is vital. In verse 17, he says that the law is immutable, unchangeable, right down to the last jot and tittle or stroke of a pen. By this, he's also confirming the reliability of the Old Testament written text. So, how does Jesus view the law? Well, he says it did, he did not come to abolish, but to fulfill the law. And this is where it gets a little difficult. If he does not abolish, but fulfills the law, why does he appear to brush aside what the Jews consider to be required of them under the law as related to cleansing and food? If you wouldn't mind, turn to Mark chapter 7, 
And here the scribes and the Pharisees challenge Jesus on following the law when the disciples are seen eating with unwashed hands. And there they say, why do your disciples not walk according to the traditions of the elders, but they eat their bread with impure hands? And Jesus said to them, rightly did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites, as it is written, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far away from me. But in vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the precepts of men. Neglecting the commandment of God, you hold to the tradition of men. He was also saying to them, you are experts at setting aside the commandment of God in order to keep your tradition. For Moses said, honor your father and your mother, and he who speaks evil of father and mother is to be put to death. But you say, if a man says to his father or his mother, whatever I have that would help you is Corban, that is to stay given to God, and I need to pause here, Corban, or part of honoring mom and dad, uh, was to take care of them in their old age. And Corban was this practice that the Jews sometimes uh, conveniently uh, uh, grasped, which would exempt their assets from that obligation to mom and dad by declaring them as set aside to God, and then they could kind of secretly use them for their own purposes. Let's continue in verse 12. You no longer permit that person to do anything for his father or his mother. Thus, you invalidate the word of God by your tradition, which you have handed down, and you do many such things as that. Then he calls the crowd back and says in verse 14, Listen to me, all of you, and understand. There is nothing outside the man which can defile him if it goes into him. But the things which proceed out of the man are what defile the man. If anyone has ears to hear, let him hear. Now, Jesus here is a little too subtle for the disciples. And so they ask him, what do you mean by this? So he said to them, are you so lacking in understanding also? Do you not understand that whatever goes into the man from outside cannot defile him because it does not go into his heart but into his stomach and is eliminated? little biology lesson. And he is saying that which proceeds out of the mouth, that is what defiles the man. For from within, out of the heart of men, proceed the evil thoughts, fornications, thefts, murders, adulteries, deeds of coveting and wickedness, as well as deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, and foolishness. All these evil things proceed from inside and defile that man. Now first, what is Jesus not saying? Kids, he's not saying you can eat all the Captain Crunch that you want and not have consequences. You can't eat spoiled food and not have consequences. We know from experience that what you put in your mouth can hurt you. Okay? In fact, if you ask your doctor about specifics, and he has any knowledge of the Old Testament at all, he might just tell you that following some of the Old Testament regulations about cleansing and food may have spiritual or, or physical benefits. For instance, cervical cancer uh, is one of the most common gynecological malignant tumors worldwide and is a leading cause of death from genital malignancies in women. It was noticed over 100 years ago that celibates, like Catholic nuns, had an almost non-existent rate of this type of cancer. 
And this led to this, the discovery of STDs. But there was also a non-celibate group with a very low incidence of cervical cancer, Orthodox Jewish women. Now, the reasons for this uh, medical anomaly have long been debated. What's unique about this group? Well, it could be the strict male practice of circumcision for their husbands. It could be abstinence during certain times of the cycle. It could be diet. Sorry, bacon lovers. Or it could be marrying within the faith. Maybe Jewish women are just genetically superior. I don't know. But we cannot discount the possibility that it very well could be something to do with their lifestyle. God may have given them some hints as to living a healthier life. You know, it, it could be said that one of the advantages of completely ignoring the Old Testament laws about food and diet and cleansing and all that is that you may get to see Jesus a lot sooner than you would have if you'd paid attention. Hope you got that. If, however, you read what Jesus says here, it is clear that he is refocusing the issue back to the purpose of God's law and word. The food and uncleanness that enter the body, while important, is not the issue. Rather, the issue is what proceeds out of the heart. He did this because the scribes and Pharisees, through their traditions of men, had diverted the focus from the inward heart to outward performance. Now, while I don't want to and don't have the time, certainly, to cover all the various arguments about how we interpret this passage, I need to deal with one that many of you, I suspect, have heard and maybe assumed is valid. The argument involves dividing the Old Testament law into three groups, moral, civil, and ceremonial. And if this has been your view, you know, you're not alone. This view goes all the way back to Thomas Aquinas in the 13th century. Clearly, the New Testament writers in the early church did not practice the Old Testament ceremonial law and sacrificial system. This system pointed to Jesus, and he fulfilled it with the ultimate practice for all, ultimate sacrifice for all of our sins. And if you doubt that, you may want to read Hebrews 10. The argument also contends that the civil law is no longer applicable in that God's chosen no longer constitutes a nation. You may wonder, what's Israel? Well, not in the sense that they did back then. Now, politically, I think there are good practical as well as biblical reasons for us to support and defend Israel today, but today's nation of Israel does not govern itself by the Old Testament civil law. So they conclude those who believe in this tripartite law uh, interpretation that Matthew 5, 17 through 20 refers to what is left, the moral law, which all Christians pretty much agree on. Sounds pretty good, even conveniently good. The problem with this argument is the little issue of what does Jesus say? He says, not the smallest letter or stroke of the pen, jot or tittle, shall pass from the law till all is fulfilled. Jesus is really pretty inclusive here. He doesn't make this tripartite distinction, nor does any writer in the Old or New Testament. In addition, think logically here. If we accept the notion that Jesus is referring only to the moral law here, what is moral? Is it not all that God approves? Okay. Did not God approve the civil and ceremonial law? 
Were not the Hebrews obligated to carry out morally that ceremonial law and cleansing as well as the civil laws? You see the inconsistencies with this rather popular view. Now, let's look at this another way. I mentioned earlier that I look at Scripture as wholly consistent. And the unifying theme that I see in Scripture, in God's Word, is Jesus. The 75-cent word for this view is Christocentric, or simply Christ-centered. That's the view of Scripture that says that all of Scripture, including the Old Testament, points to, relates to, and is about the Christ. If you would, turn to Matthew 11. And in this passage, Jesus is praising John the Baptist. And there, starting in verse 12, he says, From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven suffers violence, and violent men take it by force. For all the prophets and the law prophesied until John. And if you are willing to accept it, John himself is Elijah who was to come. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Now, Jesus says clearly here that not only do the prophets prophesy, but also the law itself prophesies. The Old Testament has a prophetic function. And it tells us, as Paul tells us in Galatians 3, the law has become our tutor to lead us to Christ so that we might be justified by faith. Now, there are at least a couple of types of prophecy in Scripture. I'm not an expert, but I understand there's simple prediction like Bethlehem as the birthplace of Christ that we see in Micah 5. But other prophecies are less direct, yet clearly point in a particular direction. There's an interesting one found in Deuteronomy 8 where Moses reminds the chosen that they wandered, wandered in the wilderness for 40 years, and in that process, through hunger, God taught them that man does not live by bread alone. In Matthew 4, Jesus endured 40 days of hunger and was then tempted. And in response, Jesus quotes Deuteronomy 8, where he says, man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Deuteronomy was part of the Pentateuch, which the Jews considered to be the law. Jesus himself makes it clear that the Old Testament points forward to him. Uh, On the road to Emmaus in Luke 24, the resurrected Jesus met a couple of his disciples and said, beginning with Moses and with all the prophets, he explained to them the things concerning himself in all the scriptures. And then later he said to them, These are my words which I spoke to you while I was with you, that all things which are written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. And finally in John 5, Jesus says, You search the scriptures for them, that was the Old Testament, because you think that in terms, that in them you have eternal life. But in these, but it is these that testify about me, Jesus. So, from my perspective anyway, you may disagree, it's kind of hard to imagine how anyone could suggest that the Old Testament, including the law, which points to Jesus and who in turn fulfills that law, is somehow irrelevant or done away with. But people like one-liners. They like sound bites. And so some oblige and say, the law is no more. The slate is wiped clean. And all that is left 
is the love of Jesus. Now, was and is the law abused and misinterpreted by many? Well, absolutely. But that in no way obliterates the foundational significance of the law. Without it, we really have nothing upon which to build any worldview or faith. The law is with us forever. Now, that's not me. That's Jesus who said that. He said it will not pass until heaven and earth disappear. Or in other words, until the end of time. Or in Jesus' words later, until everything, everything is accomplished. Now, while Jesus clearly opposed the traditions of man and their interpretation and their implementation of the law, he never opposed the Old Testament law itself because it points to him and he fulfills it. Now, if you can ride with me here, I'll try to explain. Let's look at the context of this passage. Jesus just finished the section we call the Beatitudes, in which he explains the character and conduct of those who are subjects of the kingdom of God and sons of God. In the remainder of Matthew 5, after verse 20, he moves on to specific issues addressed to the Old Testament Torah. And in those passages, you will, hear, you will read Jesus say repeatedly, in some form, you have heard it said, dot, 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 but I say to you, dot, dot, dot. Jesus wants his disciples and us to understand the standard of obedience to which he calls us. Now, this is the point at which we can start to understand what Paul means when he says we're not under the law and that Christ is the end of the law. But those who want to be rid of the law are perhaps starting to rejoice because they perceive we're getting to the point where Jesus is going to, to throw this whole law thing out and leave us with the universal and sole value or virtue of love. And if you're in that camp, you may want to wait a while before you blow up your balloons. There is some truth in that thought, but it's not the whole truth. In fact, it might be said it's a half-truth. Love does not destroy law. Instead, love requires law. We're going to come back to that. Just hang with me. There is another indirect prophecy, or rather chain of prophecies, which I find to be, frankly, fascinating. And I've got to give credit here. This came from, from Jim Congdon. Uh, and it involves a comparison of the account in which the law is given to Moses in the book of Exodus with the transfiguration story found in Matthew 17, Mark 9, and Luke 9. And on your study sheet, you see a side-by-side -side there. If we can go through this briefly. Uh, in Exodus, Moses went up to a high mountain on the seventh day. Jesus went up to a mountain after six days in the Gospels. Uh, Moses uh, was accompanied by three of his, his guys. Jesus had three of his. Moses' face shone. Jesus' face shone like the sun. Moses and Elijah were the two that received revelation on the mountain. Interestingly, the same two guys show up and appear to Jesus and his disciples, and they actually talk with Jesus right there. Moses set up a tabernacle uh, in which to worship. Peter, in this account, offers tents or tabernacles 
for Jesus, Moses, and Elijah. Now, here's the important part, the crux of the matter. In Exodus, God reveals himself as Yahweh and then gives Moses the Ten Commandments. In the Gospels, the Father introduces his Son and says, Listen to him. Now, it would be hard for any Old Testament law keeper, if there's such a thing around anymore, to deny the striking correlation between these passages and the position that Jesus assumes at the end in the place of the Torah. John seems to tell us that Jesus has always been the Word. In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. John 1.1. Here, Matthew, Mark, and Luke make a clear statement that Jesus has become the new Torah or revealed Word. Remember that we said that the Old Testament is prophetic, points forward to Jesus. Again, Jesus does not oppose the Old Testament law, but rather explains he is the fruition of that to which the Old Testament points. So the law and the prophets are not abolished, but have their valid continuity in Jesus. I want to make an analogy here, if you're struggling with this. Uh, when you graduate from college and perhaps decide to go on to co- graduate from high school, decide to go on to college, your high school education is not abolished but it was a necessary foundation and a prerequisite for the future event of college. Does that make sense? What is the law for us today? In Matthew 5.19, he says, Whoever then annuls one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same shall be called the least in the kingdom of heaven. Whoever keeps and teaches them, he shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Sounds like Jesus was pretty serious about commandments, or law. But just what are these commandments? So let's look at the context, not just of the Sermon on the Mount, but of of all the Gospels. It seems that these commandments are in context, not those of the Old Testament law, but they are the commands that Jesus has given and those that he will give in the Sermon on the Mount and the rest of the Gospels all of which assume and advance the Old Testament law forever. Now, that Jesus' standard is based upon the foundation of the Old Testament law is seen, I think, clearly in Matthew 22, where it says, starting in verse 34, But when the Pharisees heard that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered themselves together. One of them, a lawyer, asked him a question, testing him. Teacher, what is the great commandment in the law? And he said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great and foremost commandment. And there he's quoting Deuteronomy 6 and Deuteronomy 12. And he says the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. That's Leviticus 19. Here's the the important part. On these two commandments depend, King James says, hang the whole law and the prophets. James calls this the royal law in in James 2. Now, these commands of Jesus, that these commands of Jesus are forever, is seen in none other than his last command to us. Uh, In Matthew 28, he says, he tells us to go and make disciples 
of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you, and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Now, that these are commandments or law is pretty clear. You read John chapter 13 and a number of other references there on your page. You see a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another as I have loved you, that you love one another also. Uh, now, why is it that the no-law, all-love crowd cannot toot their kazoos? Well, if you read ahead in the Sermon on the Mount at what Jesus teaches, what you'll find is not a standard about love washing away all law, but actually a much higher standard because Jesus' standard judges and condemns not just outward action and sin, but the heart. Okay? Action, murder, heart, hatred, or anger. Action, adultery, heart, lust. It's all the same thing in Jesus' view. Frankly, I think, and you might agree with me, this is a standard that none of us can satisfy. And that's exactly why we need Jesus. What is our motivation for obedience? Now, in our apologetics class, we studied the existence of suffering and, and evil. And we talked about the, the argument here when talking to somebody who's confused about this and says you can't be God because there's evil in the world. Well, if there is evil, then you must agree there has to be such a thing as good. And if there's good, there must be a standard by which we call things good. And if there's a standard, do you agree? He says yes. Then there must be a standard maker. We Christians call that standard maker God. What do you come up with? Okay, that's how the argument goes. By application here, if we are sinners and God is merciful to forgive us out of love, he is forgiving us according to a standard of justice without which love would be meaningless. If we have no law or standard of justice to condemn us, his love really means nothing to us. How many of you remember the Far Side cartoons? Anybody here, the older folks? Okay, I, I thought they were hilarious. But I remember one distinctly, and it's uh, the God figure, you know, the old man with the long white beard, and he's up in heaven, and he's got a control panel with a monitor there, okay? And he's looking down at this doofus kind of walking underneath a piano raised by a crane. And the God figure has this long pointy finger extended toward the control panel with a big red button, and over the button it says, smite. Okay? Now that's, frankly, how a lot of people look at God. You know? Let's take a look at what the Word says. Yes, the command is to love God, neighbor, and one another. Is God going to push the smite button because you don't obey all the Old Testament commands? No. There might be consequences to your disobedience, but he's not going to do that just because. Does he want your ob obedience out of a sense of obligation? I say no. Is he your father? Sure. What does God ask you to do in response to, your, to the commands of your earthly fathers? Isn't it honor and obey? 
What do you suppose God the Father wants us to do for him? Wouldn't it be honor and obey him? And from what should that obedience proceed? Jesus gives us a hint. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. Now, let me give you a pragmatic application here. And again, pragmatics don't equate to truth always, but they can help us understand. Uh, and again, in our apologetics class, we talked about the atheist and one who may say that there's no God or objective morality, but if you walk up to them and you take away their cell phone and walk away, all of a sudden the atheist becomes a moralist. Get it? In the same way, one may say the law applies to us today in the same way it did to Israel forever. Or one may say that the law has no application, no meaning to us. It's all been wiped away. In reality, nobody lives that way. I don't know anybody who follows all the Old Testament laws, even some Jewish Christians. I don't know anybody who lives as if there is no law. We're all living in kind of this middle ground. Now, if Jesus did not abolish the law, did Paul? When he said, we're not under the law, but under grace, Christ is the end of the law. My answer is, I don't think so. I choose to view all scripture as consistent and that Christ and Paul did not disagree. Many would point to the passage in 2 Corinthians 3 as evidence that Paul did, in fact, announce the death of the law because he uses strong words there like taken away, done away with. And he says the children of Israel could not steadfastly look to the end of that which is abolished. Let's take a step back. As far as we can tell, historians tell us that Shortly after, or perhaps even contemporaneously with the writing of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, probably before the writing of the Gospel of John, Paul wrote in 2 Timothy 3, All Scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God might be thoroughly furnished, equipped for every good work. Now, when Paul wrote that to Timothy, what was all scripture? I don't know. There may have been some letters floating around at that time, but it was primarily the Old Testament. Now, I don't have time to cover everything that Paul says about the law today, and I'm sure there will be other messages in the future about that. But I do not believe he is saying that, he, that the law is abolished. In fact, he says flat out in Romans 7, the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. But let's go back to 2 Corinthians 3. We don't have time to read it today, but if you read that passage honestly with an open mind, you will see no explicit statement by Paul that the law is abolished. But he does say that something is done away with, is taken away, is abolished. Paul refers to something as a veil. Now, what is a veil? I understand it to mean a covering. And in this context, the focus is on covering the eyes of the observer. Paul seems to say it much when he says, speaking of the Jews in verse 14 of that chapter, their minds were blinded. Okay? In short, I believe what Paul says is that the Jews are blinded in the way they look at and apply the law, that is, by the letter. 
without that blinding fail, they would veil, they would understand that, as he says in verse 6 of that chapter, the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. And I suggest that is borne out in the remainder of the passage, uh, starting in verse 14. For until this very day, at the reading of the Old Covenant, the same veil remains unlifted, because it, the veil, is removed in Christ. But to, but to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over the hearts of the Jews. But what it, whenever a person turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. Now, the Lord is the Spirit. And where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. But we all, with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as from the Lord, the Spirit. Now, I've had contact with lots of different Christians over the years of many stripes. Mainline, Independent, Charismatic, Pentecostal, Arminian, Calvinist, Calvinist and Reformed, Anabaptists and Baptists of many shades. And you know as well as I do that there are lots of disagreements on, on small issues here. Thankfully, God knew that we were going to have that problem, and he loves us so much that he gave us instructions for what to do when we don't agree on his instruction. Uh, and again, we don't have time to go into that today. I would refer you to a two-part series called Your Liberty on the Lion and Lamb website. That's in November the 1st of 09 and January the 10th of 2010. And we try to deal with that issue about how to treat one another expansively there. I will say uh, that if we listen to God's instructions on how these, we, should, we should resolve these issues uh, by Paul, we'll all be much better off. In Colossians 2, he says, starting in verse 16, Therefore, no one is to act as your judge in regard to food or drink in respect to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath day, things which are a mere shadow of what is to come but the substance belongs to Christ. In short, receive and give grace when you disagree with people on some of these issues. In conclusion, uh, Paul is, reproves the church in Galatia in Galatians 5 for falling into the false teaching of trying to earn their salvation by keeping the law. He says in verse 1, it was for freedom that Christ set us free. Therefore, keep standing firm. Do not be subject again to a yoke of slavery. But then as a good teacher, Paul offers this counterbalance. In verse 13, For you were called to liberty, brothers. Only do not turn your liberty into an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word, as in the statement, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, take care that you are not consumed by one another. But I say to you, walk by the Spirit, and you will not carry out the, de the desires of the flesh. For the flesh sets its, its desire against the Spirit, and the Spirit against the flesh, and for these are in opposition to one another, so that you may not do the things that you please. And to sum it all up, in Paul's position, I believe, if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now, isn't that what it's all about, being led by the Spirit? You know, I may be wrong in this view, 
But I believe that being led by the Spirit is both a higher standard and at the same time an easier standard than compliance with the letter of the law. Higher because Jesus goes beyond the minimum required and our hearts, not just our action, are judged. It, it exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees, to be sure. But easier because our actions are from the heart, freely given, out of our love and our desire to please our Heavenly Father. Lord, we just give you all praise, and there are many difficult things that we wish to understand, and this is one of those. We pray, Lord, that you would help us to carry balance buckets, that we would continue to seek your best, to never forget your law, but understand how we are to apply it today. We love you, Father. And we pray, Lord, that you would continue to walk with each household today as we ponder these things. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.